welcome to the Hublic Sphere. Welcome to the Hublic Sphere, a podcast brought to you by researchers at Trinity College Dublin's Long Room Hub. My name is Claire Moriarty and I'm an Irish Research Council postdoctoral fellow at the Philosophy Department at Trinity working out of the Hub. This is the second episode of the series, which is focused on the theme of power. Ordinarily, I work on 17th and 18th century mathematics and philosophy, but given this theme of power in this episode, I return to some work I did for the Justice for Magdalene's research group a year ago, since I think it better serves the theme than my trying to discuss power series, forcing, or any other tenuous links between my mathematical research and power structures. Magdalene's in this discussion refers to Magdalene laundries, which were institutions run by religious orders in Ireland and abroad over the last two centuries, and to the women who were subjected to them. The group Justice for Magdalene's was set up in 2003 to achieve two main objectives, which were, firstly, to bring about an official apology from the Irish state, and secondly, to establish a compensation scheme for all the Magdalene survivors. Justice for Magdalene's research, or JFMR, was set up after these goals were achieved to advance and continue the education of the public on these issues. In this podcast, I catch up with three of the leading figures in Justice for Magdalene's on an afternoon in late August, following the completion of a major project by the group, to ask them about the role of power in their research about Irish institutions, their advocacy of survivors of Irish carceral institutions, and for their thoughts on the relations between research, activism and advocacy. As a quick content note, please be aware that this episode includes references to sexual violence, institutional abuse and wrongful imprisonment. We begin the interview with Catherine O'Donnell introducing herself and her connection to the work, followed by similar introductions from Claire McGettrick and Maeve O'Rourke. I got involved in 2009 uh, at the request of Jim Smith. We had a mentor in common in Boston College. He had relatively recently reached out to Claire McGettrick, Mary Steed, who had founded Justice uh, for Magdalene's campaign. And so he asked me on board because at the time I was director of the UCD Women's Studies Centre. So it's 11 years later and I'm I'm still working with them. (laughs) It's been a very long year. And then, so what do you do ordinarily then when you're not working on these issues? You know, who are you and what's your job? I'm an academic who works in University College Dublin. I was 10 years director of the Women's Studies Centre there and now I'm very happily ensconced as Associate Professor in School of Philosophy. My title is History of Ideas and that's what I lecture and research on. Brilliant, thanks a million. So what about you Claire? How did you get involved or what are you doing now? Well what I'm doing now is I'm doing a PhD um, in sociology on adoption in uh, University College Dublin as well. Um, I was involved in an adoption activist organisation back in the early 2000s, uh, around which time Mary Raftery's story broke about the High Park exhumations where we originally thought that 133 women were exhumed um, uh, for the sake of a property development. However, Mary Raftery revealed that it was actually 155 women and that they didn't have death certificates for 75 of them, that... um, that 23 of them were only under Magdalene religious type names. Um, so a few of us in um, Adoption Ireland, as it was at the time, the uh, Adoption Activist Organisation, uh, decided to get involved. And there was myself, Mary Steed um, and Angela Murphy. So we approached Margot Kelly and Blonnet Nikaneda, who were sort of part of the original uh, Magdalene Memorial Committee founded in 1983 when they would have been uh, involved in trying to put a stop to the exhumations and or, order and, and try and organise a, a public um, service for the women um, and we sort of resurrected the, the Magdalene Memorial Committee and sort of within a year we, we became Justice for Magdalene's because survivors started contacting us and memorial didn't seem <laughs> appropriate anymore. Okay, so the kind of, yeah, the work found its way to you then eventually. Yeah. And so what is the PhD then? Is so it's predominantly around um, expert knowledge on adopted people, focused on on sort of how adopted people are constructed 
I believe that that impacts here in Ireland, in the UK, um, in terms of how adopted people are sort of constructed, how people, how adopted people are managed, i.e. we have no right to our birth certificates or our adoption files, uh, which is which are in fact our personal data. And Maeve, what about you? Uh, what are you doing and how did you get involved with this set of issues? I am currently a lecturer in human rights at the Irish Centre for Human Rights in NUI Galway. I've been there since April um, 2018. Um, Before that, I spent a year and a bit as Senior Research and Policy Officer for the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. And before that, I was doing a PhD and before that, working as Barrister in London. Um, So I continue to practice a very small bit. I'm um, involved in a case at the moment against Ireland at the UN Committee Against Torture uh, on behalf of Elizabeth Coppin, who's a survivor of a county home and industrial school and three Magdalene laundries. And it's a great opportunity to air all of the legal issues that I have worked on now for 10 years with Justice for Magdalene's and then Justice for Magdalene's research. Um, so I came to working with Jim, Mary, Catherine and Claire in 2010 Um, I went to America to do a master's in law and um, I just was really captivated by uh, the people who were speaking out that summer in 2009 about the industrial schools and how that sat with my view of what human rights work was, I suppose what I just assimilated um, from my studies and it just didn't add up to me or it made me stop and think Human rights isn't just about working internationally uh, in relation to things that are happening in other people's countries. One of the immediate things I realised about our reckoning uh, with so-called historical abuse was the gender aspects. And one of those was uh, the exclusion of Magdalene laundries and, of course, also mother and baby homes adoption. I mean, there are so many things that had been excluded at that point and are still excluded now. But I met Jim Smith in Boston College in early 2010 in the course of my research for my master's thesis, which I then focused on the Magdalene laundries and on the state's human rights responsibilities in relation to the Magdalene's. And as soon as he read my master's thesis, he invited me to join the gang. Um, And the rest is history, I suppose. Okay, thank you so much for this sort of primer on uh, the different personalities involved in Justice for Magdalene's. Uh, the term Magdalene Laundry is one that's probably fairly well known now, at least in modern Ireland. But for those who are unfamiliar with these institutions and similar institutions, is it possible to give a bit of background here uh, and help people understand how it became such a dominant part of Irish life? There were 10 Magdalene institutions in Ireland from the time of the independence of the 26 counties uh, in 1922. Uh, and there were two other Magdalens uh, north of the partition border. They're run by, they were run by four religious orders, um, Good Shepherd Sisters, Our Lady of Charity. And those two orders were French originally in their foundation. And they have since kind of recombined um, in more recent years. And then there was two Irish orders as well, um, the Sisters of Charity and the Sisters of Mercy. And they ran these Magdalene institutions at 10 locations around the country, two in Cork, four in Dublin, one in Waterford, New Ross, Limerick and Galway. They were for-profit organisations. They made, um, they certainly had very large turnover for the the commercial aspect of their enterprises, um, which was laundry and fine needlework, such as Limerick lace and kind of smocking and embroidery. Generally, the institutions would have had about 100 girls and women um, per institution. And the the theological um, impetus that went alongside the the profit-making was that these girls and women were penitents and were following in the footsteps of of the the biblical character of Mary Magdalene. And by dint of of, um, mortifying their body with... Uh, hard work, they were purifying their souls and that that this kind of purification would, would, would mean that they would be more cleansed from the sins that they were alleged to have committed or were regarded as being in danger of committing. 
The state fully uh, subscribed to these institutions in terms of ensuring that the police force was used whenever any girls or women managed to run away. Um, the girls and women were locked up. They were largely in dormitories with very inadequate heating. Um, they had to wear um, uniforms. Their hair was cut short. They were given religious names or a house name or a number. And they were put to exceedingly hard, difficult, physical, at times quite dangerous labour in, in the laundries. You could after a period of incarceration, agree to your incarceration uh, and kind of take on a, a vow to become a consecrated Magdalene. We don't know much about kind of this aspect of, of the history because unfortunately the four religious orders that ran these institutions have kept those archives kind of secret and private uh, and aren't available to researchers. Catherine, what sort of, what sort of lower bound are we looking at? Like what, what age did, did women end up? Well, the state report um, that inquired into state involvement in, in the Magdalene laundries, it's known as a, the Interdepartmental Committee Report or the McAleese Report, that found that there was girls as young as nine uh, committed. In the oral history project that we've conducted with uh, the help of the Irish Research Council, we have interviewed many women who were put in as girls aged 11 up to 14 because they were the victims of incest or rape or sexual molestation. And again, according to the lights of kind of the theological view of these Catholic religious orders, these were then damaged goods. And even though all these orders also ran residential institutions for children, girls weren't put into those institutions. Um, I did speak to, to one nun who said you couldn't put in a girl like that in with more innocent children. Um, so they were seen again, according to the theological view, as being in, in ways stained or even having a certain amount of guilt, which again is quite common in many cultures that, that girls and women who are victims of sexual violence are seen in some ways to have elicited or incited or asked for it. So these Magdalene institutions were largely kind of secret in that they were behind high walls there was many other things happening on the campus, um, so-called orphanages or residential schools or industrial schools. The only one that was kind of a standalone Magdalene um, that, that advertised itself as such um, because it had Magdalene Asylum and gold Gothic lettering on, on its gable wall was the, the Magdalene laundry run by the Mercy Order in uh, downtown central Galway. And I find that quite interesting because... That one, we know for sure that there was at least three different groups of people who were banded together in, a, in kind of a, a secret support group that would help girls and women who managed to escape from there. So, you know, when, when people say, well, society condoned what happened in the Magdalens, I, I like to stress that actually, I don't think many Irish people knew exactly how bad conditions were. And when they were aware, as the, the population in Galway were, you, you see at least a certain amount of people very actively trying to uh, support the resistance of the, the escapees. I think it is revelations about the Magdalene institutions and how punitive, uh, punishing uh, the levels of forced labour, how terrifying they were for the inmates. I, I really do think that that's still relatively recent information for the vast majority of Irish people. It's, it's obvious that sort of tying into the theme of power there are these kind of two roles there's this industry uh sort of corporate element to things so that you know that you're working in an institution that is that is generating money but also a sort of moral power or a sense of the church as providing a justification uh with promising reform of various kinds but this sort of produces a situation in which it's very difficult for for women to leave the institutions right because it's not sort of run in the same way as, you know, a, a jail or a system where you're sort of promised a certain amount of time in an institution. And then once your time is up, you leave. Um, so I mean, would either of you be able to speak to kind of the difficulties women experienced in trying to trying to leave these institutions? Yeah, I mean, the survivors are unanimous on that, that like you... You know, we, we we always ask them, you know, were you told how long you're going to be there? And most will tell you no, even though we have, say, newspaper archives that will tell you 
that they were sent to a laundry, say, for example, in, uh, as an alternative to a prison sentence. But then they die decades later uh, behind laundry walls. But yeah, the fact that they didn't know when they were ever going to get out and then they would, and so many of them were so young and they'd walk in and see all these older women clearly institutionalised around them. So many of them speak about that. And, you know, they kind of, in their minds, they're like, am I going to be the rest of my life here? What is, what, what's going to happen? Yeah, we've, we've, we've had quite a bit of testimony on escapes, escape attempts. Invariably, they'd be brought back by the guards, um, the Irish police, if, um, if they were caught. We have had one or two, thankfully, successful escape. What tended to make the difference there, Claire? Do you I mean... I've read lots of the testimony myself, thinking about people's attempted escapes. Is there some key ingredient of sort of support from family or from strangers? Or was did something often make the difference between somebody sort of escaping this life and not? Well, I think in Galway, you had the, the as Catherine spoke about, the network of people that would have, you know, helped them um, to hide them. We had testimony, I think, that Maeve took for... Um, uh, when we were submitting to the, the McAleese Committee of, of, you know, the son of a guard in Cork who would, you know, if he heard of a girl escaping, he'd stick on the kettle or something just to give her a chance to get ahead because he'd be, he'd be called to, to go out and get her. You know, I, th- I mean, our, this one testimony that sticks out is of a woman that she escaped with another girl. They went to the other girl's home. The other girl got to stay because she was with her family, but the, the woman we spoke to didn't have anybody to go to, so she was brought back. You know, so I think having somewhere to go to was crucial. I don't know if Maeve or Catherine would add to that. Uh, well, I, I'd probably just take up this issue of power and the arbitrary detention. I think it is really interesting to think about because the absence of law was something that gave great power to the institutions that enforce this regime and continues to give them great power today, the state in particular, the church. And I think it's something, the absence of law is something that defines our entire health and social care system in Ireland. And that has impacts in various ways. So in the first place, you're not entitled to any particular type of care. What they do to you is not only unregulated, but also seen as benevolent because you're not a rights holder. Um, You're someone that the powers that be has chosen to generously respond to. When they do respond to you in whatever way they choose to, you don't actually have anything set down in law about how you are to be treated. So the most basic requirements, you know, when someone detains someone else, obviously it's usually uh, the state, but through various regulation in social care in particular, it can be uh, with the authority of the state um, these days. Like the most basic requirements of the right to liberty, the right not to be arbitrarily detained, or that you would know why you were detained, how long you were detained for that you would have regular reviews, that you'd have the right to challenge your detention. The fact that those laws didn't exist meant in the past and means now that the powers that be again act as if what happened didn't happen. So the Irish state now contends that there was no confinement in a legal sense in the Magdalene Laundries. I do think it's important to kind of meditate on that, that there's massive power that comes from the absence of law. And That requires the guards to be willing to act in the absence of law. It requires, you know, all the all the state bodies that acted in the ways that they did, that supported the Magdalene laundries, that made contracts with the nuns, that the factories inspectors who went in and checked the status of the machinery required them all to act happily in the absence of any law allowing this detention of girls and women. And today in Ireland... I would say if I was asked to kind of name, you know, the top kind of most significant, most serious human rights violations that are in our DNA, one of them absolutely is arbitrary detention. I mean, it's well known and it's being called out for so long now by the Law Reform Commission of Ireland and others that we have no legal regime still for detaining people in health or social care settings apart from psychiatric institutions in very um, few circumstances in prison. And yet we all know that people are detained every single day of the week in places um, that are, you know, say that they're for health and social care of people. So yeah, that's just one thing I would add on the detention front. I think the power of being informed about 
what's happening is, is a recurring theme uh, in the sort of transcripts I've worked on of women discussing their time in Magdalen laundries. And it seems like essential to that process often was selling Magdalen laundries as an educational institution or training institutions or convincing the people that had power over the women before they had all of the power removed from them and were institutionalized to convince those people that what they were doing was not really causing them to be detained, but actually improving their life circumstances in line with various kinds of promise. So again, this kind of power of knowledge and understanding and the power that the state and the church assumed by sort of campaigns of misinformation. Yeah, and and I think seeing children and women as sub-constitutional rights holders or something, because you really could never lock up a load of grown men in a Magdalene laundry and say that it was for their own education or welfare without it being actually seen as them being locked up and then you needing to justify why and all of that. So like, the, you know, the, the idea that you post force people into incarceration in order to educate them is an idea, I think, that only could possibly apply in our culture to particular groups of people. I think, especially thinking about the law again, it seems like laws are things that belong to people. And again, there was sort of an intentional campaign often to make people not understand themselves as people. So by removing their name, um, by telling them to forget about their families, by giving them a number instead of a name, it seems again to be the kind of project in which people come to understand themselves as not the kind of things that have rights, not the kind of people that the state or any institutions have obligations towards as well. Or maybe also not their families. I mean, once you're in a Magdalene laundry, there was literally nothing you could do about it. So even if you did realise that, I mean, what are you going to do? But even people on the outside, maybe, and their ability to agitate, I don't know, Catherine probably has more of a thought on that. I think I was very surprised and it's a lesson. It was a lesson to me as a junior lawyer that I will take with me throughout my career when I met women for the first time in London, they had been to solicitors. So they absolutely did understand that they had been wronged uh, and people have been to the guards and they have not received the responses that they should have. Maeve said, you know, in the Irish state's DNA, there's there's the, the will or impulse to lock up people to be carceral. Um, and, and then those people are subjects or objects, you know, um, don't have rights and don't have agency. I think also deeply embedded in the Irish state's DNA is the privatisation of care of the most vulnerable. Because the state paid top dollar uh, to these religious orders to do the social welfare and care and education and medical hospitalisation and medical needs of, of the Irish population right throughout the 20th century and into the 21st century. I was just going to say, yeah. not something that's disappeared. And, and the state you know, privatizes this. So it means the religious orders make profit on it. And the state also thinks that it it is therefore not culpable or to be held responsible for when these systems fail. So we saw with the Louise O'Keefe case, how viciously the state denied that it had anything at all to do with the national education, uh, primary school sector. Um, That in fact, they had privatised this and it was up to the each religious parish board that ran these national schools to be the people who were put in the dock when the systems failed. And the system failed Louise O'Keefe and other children in horrendous ways. And she was uh, sexually abused by the principal of the school. And the state actually legally argued that it had no culpability because it was, in effect, had, had outsourced to a, to a private concern. To the extent that they were prepared to counter-sue her when she lost in the Irish courts um, for costs, a case that was patently in, in, in the public interest. And they, they left her hanging for a number of weeks with this enormous tens of thousands of euro bill uh, for taking this case. So, And they're continuing to uh, deny justice to the people who were raped as primary school uh, children because of an exceedingly narrow interpretation, their own policy interpretation of the case, saying unless a complaint had been made and the school board did nothing about that complaint, nobody is entitled to uh, redress or compensation. So the the state civil service, the deep state, if you like, seems to, um, I think in 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 a really disturbing way, 
continue to operate this policy of paying for-profit organizations to care for the people who most need care in our society. And, and, you know, a terrible example of that is direct provision, where the overwhelming amount of direct provision centres are for-profit run concerns. Mm -hmm. That's something that we kind of had to learn the hard way through our campaign, um, that it's not just about convincing politicians to do the right thing. We have a really deep problem in our state civil service and policy sector that continue to operate in this manner um, and that continue to allow private for-profit concerns to behave in a most outrageous way with a a complete absence of regulation and in some way then to kind of abdicate the responsibility of of all of us to to pay attention to how the most vulnerable are being treated. Am I right in thinking there are overlaps here in the case of adoption and in sort of mother and baby scenarios where certain pressures, yeah. Yeah, I mean... I, you know, it's it, in many ways that it's it's obvious when it comes to the mother and baby homes. You know, and I know we're going to talk about sort of misconceptions. There's there's sort of a often a misunderstanding that the laundries and the mother and baby homes were one of the same thing. I think the operation of the mother and baby homes were that there were they had laundries on site, but it wasn't necessarily a, a sort of a business sort of a thing um uh, although we do have testimony from some women who would have been ironically and awfully just after uh, giving birth and relinquishing their children um in one particular mother and baby home they had them uh, making greeting cards for like women who had just had babies awful oh. awful stuff but for me the you know it, it, my bugbear with all of this stuff is that it's sort of there's there's a tendency to focus only on institutions and you do that at the expense of understanding this this whole wider system you know that's uh, quite gendered that but that's also anybody who's a little bit different doesn't um d- doesn't uh, fit in and that's where adoption um comes in there's this assumption that when you know um the the and again this was largely a private run thing as well the, the, the religious orders ran um various adoption agencies um around around the country i'm not entirely sure to what extent they were state funded the i think the, the certainly the mother and baby homes would have been subsidized all right yeah but with adoption you know you have an entire system where people's identities are being obliterated from a very young age and it's constructed in such a way that uh, the people don't actually know that they're subjected to an injustice by having their identity obliterated because they've grown up into it. Um, and it's very, very difficult to address. So I think it's one of the sort of last things I think that we need to address. Um, it's not the only thing, but uh, it's it's certainly amongst the last. It's, it's a huge population of people who are only starting to become aware, I suppose, um, you know, because, as I say, because of how it is sort of constructed um, people just don't realise that what happened to them was wrong because obviously they love their adoptive parents in most cases and, you know, so they don't feel able to say, well, hang on a minute, my identity was taken. I think I've gone off the original point somehow, but... That's fine. But before we move on to the kind of more positive sort of aspects of, you know, the advocacy and progress that's been made, Maeve, did you have anything to say on any of those issues we just discussed? I suppose, yeah, I'd, I'd love to talk a bit more about secrecy. This is a real bugbear of mine and... I really, I just am so grateful every day that I'm working on these issues because I just can't see a better use of my legal training and skills because so much of what is happening now and what happened in the past to people in these institutions is like described and parsed and justified and actually dictated by all of these legal interpretations or laws that don't have to be the way they are but that the people who were victim to the abuses and a lot of the onlookers seem to think it's just the way things are the way that they have to be oh the constitution says this or you know the rights of the alleged perpetrator are this um and there's such a huge need to untangle all of that and to give people back a proper understanding of their rights um and for the rest of us to demand actual justice so the way that the state has dealt with the uh, what it would call truth telling to date um, really has been to do things in secret to gather evidence in private 
to produce reports that it claims are the truth, but are the state's own narrative of what happened, whether it was um, in Magdalene laundries now in mother and baby homes. And that's fine for the state to want to produce a narrative, but it cannot be at the expense of anyone else ever getting to do so. Um, it also, you know, is a massive problem when it's not actually from the beginning defined in terms of rights. So we don't tend to see the terms of reference of these inquiries being set out in terms of constitutional rights, European Convention on Human Rights, entitlements and obligations. And that makes no sense to me because they're not criminal investigations, nor are they court. So if they're not either of those things, then what are they? And what we tend to get is a kind of uh, like, here are the facts in a in a some kind of a moral a legal uh, sense um, and then the archives are sealed and so it is not possible for people to take the evidence to the police it's not possible even for them to question the interpretation of the evidence and it's not possible them for, for them to use it to try and get justice in the civil courts and then on top of that we have the misinterpretation of regular laws relating to freedom of information and personal data access that are all to do with the kind of cultural discrimination against the people who are seeking their information and a desire to just leave sleeping dogs lie or to protect what people think are the more important rights of those who would be so-called outed as perpetrators even if these people are no longer alive even if the records are simply written records that they themselves kept in their archives that you know are administrative records and then there are gagging orders on people who went to the redress board it's a criminal offence for people who give evidence to the mother and baby homes to repeat that evidence in public or um, for evidence given in private to be published. So the list goes on and there's a real need to stop this practice and for the very first thing that happens when the state claims to want to address abuse, uh, for that to be truth-telling. Because nothing else that you do if it's not accompanied by truth-telling has legitimacy as a form of redress. It seems amazing that you have this almost sort of abuse of the word narrative, right, where you have this kind of, you know, political and legalistic narrative provided or needed by various actors at a kind of state level, but completely at the cost of the much more natural understanding of narrative, which is people's ability to understand where they've come from, what their backstories are, who they are as people. It's, yeah, it's sort of, you know, there's great power in understanding the facts about your circumstances, especially when you're looking to pursue redress or justice and yeah to have those sort of basic facts of your existence and your circumstances denied and kept in secret seems you know a really an enduring abuse above and beyond the kind of specifics that people claim sometimes so it's obvious I think how the theme of power relates here we've looked at lots of different versions of that state power the power of religion uh, sort of a sense of a moral power narrative you know given to women about their own redemption I'm also interested in the way in which power can be reclaimed by those it's been taken from. So it strikes me that a lot of the work that Justice for Magdalene's and now Justice for Magdalene's research have done has been concerning the power of testimony uh, and memorialization and women coming forward to tell the rest of society what was done to them. Uh, can you speak on that dimension of things at all and kind of some of the progress that's been made uh, and how those ends have been achieved? Um, I think a central thing that Justice for Magdalene's did was to follow the ethos of Claire in particular and Mary too, of course, that survivors came first, um, their their needs, their wishes, their safety came first and also allied with that let's empower them to deal with the McAleese Commission so um, Claire did up the most amazing kind of guides and news and Mary did newsletters informing people how to engage um, and, and kind of what was going on and then also when just as John Quirk was given the job of designing a redress scheme uh, Claire designed a whole load of guides for allies and survivors to deal with the with the with the quirk um, uh, commission of inquiry it was at that moment we stepped down the campaign and became justice for magdalene's research and in the research you know kind of having having got a state apology and having got kind of a redress scheme which followed a, a lot of the template of the redress scheme that we had been saying should be put in place once the state apology 
uh, was given. We we then started to work on kind of the the broader issues of what what we had learned from the campaign um, uh, in terms of how else we should change Ireland to make Ireland more fair. And again, the survivors are central to that. So we see them as expert witnesses. We have worked to gather their oral histories because we see their oral histories as being a national treasure, which can not only uncover their stories and and, uh, the abuse that was done to them in the name of the state, in the name of the church, but also we get a really good sense as to how they survived and how they thrived. What were the strategies and what were the principles and what were the practices by which they became the amazing women they managed to become. The redress scheme that, you know, for the most part, we think um, Cork did did very well, um, even though Megan Clare can, can speak to, to where we have issues with it. One of the, the central things that we, we argued in our draft redress scheme was that the women should be allowed and facilitated to meet each other because so many of the women had said that they really wanted to be in touch with others who'd had the same experience, that once they got out and got away, they had never been able to keep contact with those still in the institution. So they were wondering, did did other people survive them? They often didn't have the real names of the girls and women they worked alongside And they wanted to uh, kind of care for people they'd never really got to know that well because the the rule of silence was so strongly enforced and and the work was kind of so intense and and all present. They wanted to to reconnect with those people, but they also wanted the validation of other people, other people who'd also suffered the same things. They wanted to meet them on on, on those grounds as well. So understand how community could be such an important thing, you know, Mm -hmm to emerge from that circumstance. Claire, do you have any thoughts on on sort of bringing people together in that way? How How has that work with Justice for Magdalene's been carried out? How have you sort of brought people together? It's funny because we we never set out to be, you know, we know we've from day one we said, look, we're not a, a so-called representative group. Uh, we're, we're here to advocate. We're here to open the door to justice for everybody. But of course, survivors find their way to to your door. And of course, you fall in love with them straight away and you don't, you know, you never turn anybody away. And, you know, so I suppose it really, we would have always been dealing with them on an individual basis up until, I don't know, about 2012, there thereabouts, um, at which point we had um, decided, um, thanks to the advice of Raymond Hill, a barrister who was working with us pro bono, um, and Maeve's urgings as well to, to gather testimony to uh, submit to the McAleese Committee. So we decided to gather as many of them as possible to, to, together for that pro- process. And the minute we did, you know, they, they, it was phenomenal to see them, you know, interact with each other, to see them, you know, just that sense of solidarity. They were all on the one page. They were all um, finishing each other's sentences. And we brought them together a few times um, after that, both for further kind of meetings to, to discuss our thoughts on redress and also to meet with uh, Senator McLeese um, a couple of times as well. And again, you know, every time you did get that sense of, of community, but we, we only would have ever done it on a very small scale, um, you know, and qu- quite a lot of organisation went into it in the background to make sure everybody was safe and nobody felt there was going to be a TV camera involved. And because the majority of the women that would be in contact with us. I think one of the things that a lot of them have, would have in common is that they don't want to be in front of the cameras, whereas some other women might, you know, but the majority of the women that would speak to us, you know, they tell us things they wouldn't tell their kids, uh, to be honest, you know. So, yeah, but but the, that sort of, it, I feel quite privileged actually to have witnessed that sort of camaraderie, sense of community between them just so early on that just and it was instantaneous like they just they're amazing to each other and and, um you know it was I think around then that we realized like the one of the hallmarks of a Magdalene survivor is you know you know you're talking to one because she's like always thinking of somebody else and think gosh I thought I had it bad she had it worse you know that's how they are. But Claire, you were involved in transcribing the testimonies of the women who gathered together in the summer of 2018. So 
Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts and maybe we can just briefly describe how that came about. Um, yeah, well, just, just as Claire said there, um, it's a constant theme that I experienced in in sort of trying to, to help record and preserve these pieces of testimony that somebody had it worse. Oh, it wasn't so bad for me as for that other person. This incredible sort of uh, survivor attitude and an enormous sense of sympathy for people who had gone through similar things uh, to those those people themselves and you can sort of understand why it would be so important then to have that aspect of community because you know community memory is a powerful thing uh, to have your experiences which are so often denied by the state and various other kind of operators legitimized just by the fact of the other people who went through it with you you know to be able to finish each other's sentences remember the name of the person this anecdote happened to that kind of thing so important in establishing a sense of shared history and you know understanding what happened there so yeah I came into doing that work through Catherine who I was lecturing a course with completely accidentally I mean I work in philosophy of mathematics so it has been one of the greatest privileges for me to get out of that abstract work and you know come to understand this really vitally important aspect of Ireland um, and the history of Irish women it's enriched my understanding of my country and of the sort of people I consider my own people enormously um I'm just thinking now as we sort of wind up there are sort of two big questions I'd like to ask each of you so all of us are involved in working in academia there are obviously misconceptions about what people do but also, you know, the Magdalene laundries are a thing that have received a lot of kind of media attention as well. And I'm just wondering, you know, to each of you, if there was some sort of misconception of either your work or the nature of the laundries and the institutions that you'd love to correct based on all of the incredible work that you've done with them. You know, if I give you that opportunity now, you know, I'd love to know what you thought would be something vital for the public to understand better. For me, a big thing is that um, I think activists, academia, you know, should not be considered a bad thing or to want to take what you know or take what you're learning um, in the book and actually try and apply your knowledge and skills to achieve something, God forbid, political. You know, we've done a lot of political work and gathering together 230 Magdalene survivors in the summer of 2018, you know, was nothing short of a massive PR campaign in terms of trying to get the Department of Justice to give us the money to do it combined with logistical. You know, we gathered a lot of people from outside academia. Of course, the Dublin Honours Magdalene's Gathering was organised primarily by Nora Casey. But, you know, not to mention all of our campaigning from 2009 to 2013 for the apology um, and now, and Catherine might speak to it more, um, we're very involved in attempting to design through in-depth consultation a plan for a national side of conscience at Sean McDermott Street and making sure that Dublin City Council officials didn't sell the two-acre site of the Magdalene Convent at Sean McDermott Street to a budget hotel chain for 40 million euro was a massive political campaign. And I don't see that as a problem. I am extremely proud of that work, but I do think that I find it as a junior academic, sometimes even in human rights, a difficult place to be in because you just have the sense sometimes that people think it's not what you're supposed to be doing. People want you to stay in the ivory tower. Maybe a bit. Um, I don't know. So I don't know if I'm articulate. I've never really thought about it before, but that is certainly what comes to mind. It makes great academic worthwhile, but I do find it sometimes a bit of a uh, unnerving place to be in because of what you feel around you. I I might address the just uh, the flip side of that. Putting on kind of my. My other hat as an adopted person, and well, but also as a as a researcher studying adoption, you know, for for the flip side of it is, if you're on that side of the tracks, you're not going to see yourself in academia. You're not going to see yourself in the history books. You're not going to see yourself. You know, you're, you're certainly if you're adopted, you're not going to see the truth about yourself. Um, if you were in a Magdalene laundry, you're not going to see your story other than maybe a glib remark here or there. That's the flip side. That's the in. That's the impact of not doing what we're doing. You know, having experienced that, I, I, and, you know, the first social policy book I ever opened, I went to the index and looked for adoption and I couldn't find. That, for me, epitomises the 
a huge part of, of the problem. You know, it behoves everybody in academia to absolutely, I echo everything they've, they've said, you know, and lawyers, you know, <laughs> you know I, I've, I've, I've said this on a number of occasions, but, you know, lawyers weren't our favourite people really until Maeve Rourke came along, a lot of their friends, you know, because, you know, from 2003 up until about 2009, 2010, most times when we spoke to survivors, they would tell us horror stories, about what it was like dealing with their lawyers who had represented them at their address board. You know, again, and you're talking about misconceptions, you know, that, that all was fine and dandy there. It wasn't. And and oftentimes uh, they could have been better protected by their, by their own lawyers and they just weren't. So, yeah, the huge problem, I think, for, for Magdalene's uh, Magdalen survivors is this misconception that they were all, they all had babies uh, before they went into the laundries. This is something uh, that must have come up in one and two transcripts, this idea that everybody has a very specific idea of what somebody went through or what the reasons for their experience was. So it's so familiar to me and echoed in those transcript experiences. Yeah, you're saying. yeah. And time and time again, you hear it come up and, you know, you wouldn't blame them because, you know, most of the cultural representations depict young girls. They, they, they actually conflate the laundries and the mother and baby homes. And, um, you know, whereas babies were not born in, in Magdalen laundries, babies were conceived through rape in Magdalen laundries, where the women were sent to mother and baby homes to have their children and then straight back to the laundry. We have birth certs of children born in Magdalene, sorry, in mother and baby homes where the mother's at home address is the laundry. But yes, most of the women who we would know of um, who were in the laundries were frightened children, you know, ranging from 10, 11 up to their teenage years. An awful lot of them came from industrial schools. They had never known family life. They'd been thrown out at 16 or whatever from the industrial school once the capitation grant ran out. And invariably, for various reasons, they ended up in the laundries. Um, so, you know, it was very, I think it was like 10%, was it, that, that ended up, I can't remember the exact figure, but a very small percentage compared to what is popularly thought ended up uh, there because they had babies outside of marriage. They don't judge anybody who gives birth outside marriage, but they just feel it's, it's such a slight on them that everybody just assumes um, that they had babies, which is just absolutely not the case. Yeah, so, you know, to fight in addition to your own battles, this kind of further issue of being misunderstood and all being sort of tired of the one understanding. Catherine, how about you? What I'd like people to realise about activists becoming academics in, in, in Claire's case, um, that was the journey she made, or academics becoming activists in, in, in um, maybe Maeve's case, or me, who's kind of managed to combine both um, from an early age, is that they are mostly mutually um, supporting endeavours. Um, we're all feminist, and so we're feminist in our activism, we're feminist in our thinking. And one of the strong, strongest things about kind of feminist position in the academy is that it's still, it's still quite precarious at times. Um, and one of the things that we... The biggest challenge that we we give to uh, the academy is whose knowledge is it anyway? How is knowledge being created? To what ends? Who's considered expert? What are the information sets that we're using? How are we gathering them? Where are they stored? Who has access to them? These are, if you like, academic issues. They're in the, the realm of epistemology, but they're fundamental to how we see our work going ahead. So who is, it's not even that we want the Magdalens to be included in Irish history. It's nothing as, as petty as that. We want actually the, the uh, Irish history to be completely changed because it has paid attention to um, the voices of the Magdalen. We want Irish law to be completely changed. We want um, what counts as who gets to make knowledge and, and be seen as, as reliable and expert. We want that fundamental thing to be changed. So we are asking for, for very, very fundamental changes. And, and the, the position of being activist, academic, academic activist is always going to be in tension. And there have been times in both our research and, and the, the campaign in particular, where it felt like I was selling out one side or the other um, because the, the, the real difference between activism and, and the academy is, if you like, a different relationship to time. Um, activists have to be responsive, reactive. They have to work in the heat of social media, which is very fast. They have to work in kind of small, bite-sized headline pieces and 
And good academic work needs quite a bit of time. It needs to consider loads of different um, sources and loads of different um, arguments to think through the validity of various arguments and then to kind of rebut, if you like, your own argument, be able to kind of defend and and, and deconstruct your own argument. So it's an, it's an entirely different approach to time. And, and at times it can be a very tense place to be, to be trying to wear both hats. One of the, the really lovely things um, in more recent years about this kind of activist academic work I've got to do with my colleagues in Justice for Magdalene's research is that we've been been able to build a movement of other academics, and we'd include you too, Claire Moriarty, who look like you're doing kind of quite arcane, um, erudite work, but have the skills and have the vision um, because, precisely because of your academic work, to take a kind of more more objective, informed and and long-term view of what kind of culture, society, economy do we want to create with each other. So we've been able to build a movement around the pillars of transitional justice to bring in people from many other disciplines. And from my point of view, most excitingly, architecture, create a collective known as Open Heart City, which is involved in thinking through what big kind of two hectare space right in our currently atrophied inner city what that might mean for uh, a re-energized uh, 21st century Ireland. So, yeah, we our, our aim and ambition now, moving into the second decade of working with each other, is to build a mass movement of academic activists. Most of us are, are being paid by the state to, to work as intellectuals and thinkers. So, and, and most academics really do want to have that transfer of knowledge where they are allowed to become socially engaged and have a public impact. So, so that's the next phase of, of where we see yourselves going. Well, to anyone listening, thinking, you know, that they might enjoy taking themselves out of the ivory tower of abstract work or, you know, very sort of clinical, methodical study, there's no greater sense of understanding the value of training any skills up uh, that I have come to understand above, you know, the work I've done with you guys. So if anyone is ever on the fence about whether or not they can be useful or, you know, to what extent it's important to try and apply things they've learned to actual cases, I can only encourage them because it will be as valuable to you as it will be to broader projects. If there was something you wanted to recommend people who are interested in learning more about either this advocacy or this research, you know, one kind of source, one piece of reading material one thing you wanted to send people towards, what would it be? Is there, you know, is there some one thing you think people who want to know more should should, should read? If you click on educational resources on our website, you'll find everything there. Okay, and so I'll put links to that in the show notes. And then anything else, any sort of parting words? I'd also say the Adoption Rights Alliance website, yes. because Claire, I mean, we just have to acknowledge like an amazing combination. The Justice for Magdalene's Research and Adoption Rights Alliance groups are, and like Claire Amari are at the heart of them both and Claire in particular is just in the most amazing job of public communication and public education on both of those websites so sorry that's all I'd add there on the literature front and the clan project is part of both of them so there's three websites for your show notes if you don't mind perfect and thank you so much Claire for all the work you've done on providing those things for everyone Public Sphere is hosted by the Trinity Longroom Hub and is produced by Don Seymour Kloss, Sahar Ahmed, Siobhan Callahan, Elizabeth Foley, Dr. Claire Moriarty, and Dr. Lilith Acadia, with many thanks to Angus O'Loughlin for the jingle. For more information about the topics discussed in this podcast, you can visit our show notes at bit.ly forward slash public sphere, hosted by the Trinity Longroom website. Thank you for listening.